for those of you who didn't hear, how much of music containing an element of story? Uh, yeah, I've thought about that. See, I think music, I think even without words, music can tell a story. I mean, if you just listen to Somewhere Over the Rainbow, it jumps up an octave rather than going down an octave. And then at the very end, it goes up up to that top note again. Uh, and a lot of music does tell a story that way. And then that's why when you add text that tells a story, uh, as it was very common in folk music and in ballads, most of them are not about, here's how I feel right now. Uh, they're often stories. And, and often the feeling is conveyed not through, gee, I feel this way. 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 <laughs> it's conveyed by the listener's participation in the narrative, which produces the feeling. If it's well told, it, it, it produces what Aquinas called co-natural knowledge. That is, the experience of the art brings with it something of the experience of the thing that is being described. And that's what really great works do. Uh, I was thinking about it in terms of popular music. When I was a teenager, one of the kind of crossover hits of the 60s or late 60s, early 70s was uh, Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe. Not Billy Joel, not Ode to Billy Joel. <laughs> The day Billy Joe McAllister fell off the Tallahatchie Bridge. We still don't know what happened on that bridge. But so here's this like five or six verse ballad, which follows. I mean, you know, this is an ancient, ancient form of storytelling. And uh, and the music fits the necessity of telling the story. Uh, it, she she sang it almost expressionless. There wasn't a lot of emotion going into that. But there is a kind of haunting emotion that comes with the story. I don't know how I don't know how many popular songs today. I also thought of a, a much less compelling song, uh, "Shares Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves," which was also a, a ballad, and and uh, or uh, uh, "Wichita Lineman," which was a ballad. Now, some some country music still has th that ballad. These were all crossover hits that got under the pop charts. And it'd be interesting to know if ballads, that is, uh, storytelling songs, can can sell as much. I, I, I kind of think not. I kind of think not. I think that, again, part of it's the way music is experienced. Uh, it used to be you'd go out and buy a record and come home and have to sit down and put it on a turntable and sit there and play it through loudspeakers, which, which almost required... I mean, you could do other things while it was playing, but the, the technology invited, a sh first of all, a shared experience. Uh, most people didn't have headphones. I was one of the geeky high school kids who did have headphones, actually. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, there are a lot of factors that combine in this. But I think that the, when, when, when the music isn't being used to tell a story, then, uh, then the musical structure doesn't need to have a kind of narrative developmental shape to it as well. So I think that's that's part of it. And again, I think music is much, much more about mood, instant mood, uh, than, than popular music probably has ever been. Uh, so that's, yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. But 
Now, I think there's a bigger, if I can get cosmic for a minute. I mean, there's a great article that was in First Things magazine years ago. In fact, the editor of First Things once told me this was the most downloaded article. It was uh, Robert Jensen's How the World Lost Its Story. And, and, and it's an article about how in, in, in contemporary culture, I mean, most cultures believe that there's a story to tell about the world and that we live in an intelligible world. We live in a narratable world, I think was his term. And that's how religions, you know, religions tell stories about the origins and destinies of worlds. Uh, he, says, he says, most people don't think we live in a narratable world now. Or if, if we do, that physicists and biochemists tell the narration, but it's not a very interesting story when it comes down to it. Now, see, I think in a, in a, in a society in which the, we lost confidence, not just in the order of creation, but in the idea that there's a narrative order, that there's a story about history, it's not surprising that our art forms become less narrative, more kind of micro-episodic, uh, describing this little snapshot moment in people's experience. I mean, you look at painting in this, well, I was going to say 16th, 17th century, but you go back farther than that. Paintings from, uh, that illustrate scenes from biblical stories or from mythology. And everybody knew the stories, and the paintings... The painting was resonating with, the, with people's memory and knowledge of the story and the, the moral formation and communal formation that they had or national formation that they had as connected to that narrative in some way. You know, when we, we live in a time when that, that's rarely the case anymore. And uh, so it's, it's not surprising that our, art, our styles of art move to reflect that. So, yeah, the question back there. To talk about learning how to listen, what, what do you need to do? Do you need to learn how to read music? I don't think you need to learn how to read music. I've, my friend Jack Redford, the composer, Hollywood composer, has, uh, because the people at his church know he, he's, he's a composer, they, some college students approached him and said, teach us, we'd like to learn more about how to listen to music. So he brings them over to his house, and he played some music for them. And he, what he did, he, he took some music that involved what are called a theme and variations, that where, where you take a melodic, you take a melody and then you harmonize it in one way and then you kind of invert the melody or you do something with it to, to you, you play variations on the melody. And this is something jazz performers do all the time and, and uh, classical composers have done forever. And he, he played the, the basic theme and he said most of the, young people he was with couldn't hear the melody. They didn't know where the melody was. So they weren't used, they, they weren't used to listening for a melodic line and couldn't tell where the melody was. So I'd say, I mean, the first thing to do is just take time to listen to it. I mean, there is, we were talking at dinner about a book written back originally in the 1930s by Aaron Copeland called What to Listen for in Music, where he talks about basic elements of melody, harmony, and rhythm, and knowing what kinds of things to listen for. So, so in a case of a, of a melody, I mean, listen to Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Is it going up or down at various points? When does it go up? When does it go down? When does it kind of hover in one place? And what's going on there? So just, first of all, just active listening of the shape of the thing. Um, and then, uh, I mean, one of the things I think is, 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 is sad is that we don't have more, I, I read a lot about music and, I've, I re tend to read more about classical music and popular music, but when I read about popular music, almost all the writing is about the lives of the performers or what happened in the studio or how big a hit this is going to be. Very little, it's about the music. And there's a huge amount of, of, of music 
of writing about music. I read uh, the, the New Yorker pop music critic, Sa- Sasha Frere-Jones, I read regularly, and occasionally he will connect with a mu- musical element in the music, and he actually is better than most. Uh, but the reason I mention that is if you can read good, good commentary about music and, and then listen to the music that's in, in question, uh, there's, uh, there's a guy, I'll, I'll recommend um, uh, Robert Capolo, uh, who wrote two books, one called All You Have to Do is Listen, <laughs> and one called What Makes It Great. And he, he, these, these came out of lectures that he did at, uh, before concerts at Lincoln Center of classical music, and everything from Renaissance choral music to 20th century orchestral music. And what he would do is he'd give a 45, uh, actually often a 90-minute presentation before a concert, which makes kind of long, a long afternoon or evening. Uh, actually, I, I guess they were closer to about 70, 70 minutes long, where he would kind of take apart the music and kind of walk people through. I, I saw one he did recently about a, a setting of a, of a text of an Ave Maria by, by Palestrina, the 16th century uh, Italian composer. And he actually, he'll play a little piece of the melody and then he'll have the audience sing along and then he'll, he'll rewrite it. He'll say, okay, here's my inferior version of this melody. Now sing this horrible version of this melody, this really stupid version, and everybody sings it. He says, okay, that's the, that's the premiere and the last re- performance of that piece of music. Now you're going to hear what Palestrina does with just a few little melodic changes. He does this up here and he does this down here, and hear how much better that melody is. He, he has two books, uh, like, like I said, uh, What Makes It Great and All You Have to Do It, Listen, and then you go to iTunes and download a whole bunch of video podcasts, which are recordings of his lectures. And and just follow along. Uh, uh, I, again, I think a lot of it is, I don't think you need to be able to read music. It does help, but I think you just need to, to, to know what kinds of things to listen for. Yeah, over here. Yeah, so where where does Gregorian chant fit, or Taize chant, uh, with what, the complexity, a complex structure? Yeah, okay. Um, so... Uh, a lot of composers, I just, just was reading, well, actually, you can go online. There's a composer, a Scottish composer named James Macmillan. He's a Roman Catholic. He writes uh, orchestral music and chamber music, but he writes a lot of sacred choral music also. And he's very active in a parish, a local parish, and he writes music for worship in that local parish. And he has just started an organization called Musica Sacra. Scotland, which is dedicated to recovering the use of chant in congregations by parishioners, not by choirs, because he believes he believes that that chant is the most elemental form of music. He said when he was studying to be studying musical composition, one of the most helpful exercises he had, and you can see him say this in a video on their website, uh, was write write a chant like melody. Write a melody that's chantable. Write a melody that has aspects of chant in it. And he said, you begin to learn about musical structure and development by doing that. And that, he says, that is that, and I've heard a lot of other 20th century composers say the same thing, that knowing how chant works, you begin to learn how everything that came since chant works, that, 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 that actually still has that kind of meaning and intelligibility about it. So what happens in the Renaissance or shortly before or late medieval period is you begin the, the, the development of multiple voices 
in parallel, sometimes in parallel, but often in, in counterpoint. That is, they're overlapping but not doing the same thing at the same time, which is like four or five lines of chant interacting with each other. And uh, in a sense, what happens if chant is two-dimensional, this kind of music is three-dimensional. It, it has a kind of depth about it. And so you begin to listen to it and realizing that it, it, it interestingly, polyphony, it's called polyphony, that, that kind of writing, Polyphony is discovered at the same time that perspective begins to play an important role in, in visual arts. So the idea of a visual depth rather than a simple flat plane emerges at about the same time in Western history, which is fascinating. And I don't think it's any accident. I also think that it's no accident that multi-voice multi music ar arises in a Trinitarian culture. Uh, you don't have a lot of multi-voice music in Islamic cultures. Uh, only in the last 20 years has Iranian classical music allowed more than one voice at, at a time. And I think, well, if you're a, a, a really, if you're a, deep, a deeply committed Unitarian, um, you're not going to delight in the interaction of, of equal voices, which is what happens in early polyphony. So I think the chant, the, 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 the simple and, and often uh, rhythmically complex because chant doesn't follow a one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. It, it, it's interesting to me that that kind of rhythmic intensity emerges in the West uh, when when machines become dominant. Uh, the fact that we have drum machines is <laughs> is an interesting uh, kind of cultural story. Uh, but the emphasis on regular rhythm uh, emerges almost at the same time that a fascination with efficiency and quantitative, a move from a kind of organic, unpredictable mode of perception and creation to a mechanical, predictable mode of creation happens. And uh, that, that's, a very, that's a very interesting thing that's going on as well. But I, so, so, again, but composers still work with, with, um, with chant elements as basic, basic functions of... of, of uh, of much, much more complex. So it, it still is a kind of organizing basic basic unit. There was another, yes? What impact does that have? Well, yeah, what impact does the, 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 basically the, the, the technical capacity of recordings and playback and the fact that, that anyone can now um, more recently uh, distribute music that's heard by millions of people? Um, I mean, I think a number of things. I... I uh, First of all, we, we tend to listen more episodically. So I'm driving in the car. I'm listening to Brahms' first symphony. I get halfway through the second movement. I stop. I get out. I go into Whole Foods. I buy some whatever. I come back. I pick up the second half of the second movement. That's a weird, unnatural experience. <laughs> I've just, just committed a horribly unnatural act here. Because now, now some, some people watch movies that way. I can't watch a movie that way. I can't, like, stop a movie in the middle and then come back and watch the second half of it the next day or something. But, but we do tend to listen. To, we, we, we do a lot of listening because the recording allows it to, to be that way. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, uh, may, uh, even more profoundly, we, we're not used to making music with each other as much as we did. So when people bought sheet music, it's because recordings weren't as easily available. Uh, and, and no kid went out to buy records. In the, I mean, it's only in the late 1950s that kids had uh, disposable income. Uh, you know, the, the, the teenager... <laughs> 
the teenager and uh, only arises in the late 1940s. The word isn't used until like 1947. So. And the idea of youth culture as and music as part of youth culture that's a, that's a very that's a totally new phenomenon, partly because of the technology that enables it. But so we don't sing we we typically don't make music together unless you're in a garage band of some kind. Uh, but and and no almost no one makes music with their family. The churches are the only places left, and even in most churches that's not the case. So to grow up, I grew up in a church where the whole family, are, you know, we sang together. We sang together at home. We sang together in church. It was just kind of the normal thing to do. And so music was part of a communal experience, which it, it is, you know, even I, I often uh, am amazed at, at the experience in British pubs of people singing together or, or the, the football fans. Uh, you know, I think all of the big football, what we call soccer teams, have uh, have songs that associate with the teams. And, you know, our rowdy football people paint their bodies strange colors and wear strange hats made of cheese or something. Uh, they do that, but then they sing about it. too. So we don't have we, for some reason outside of the church, we don't have a tradition of of communal singing, which uh, so in a sense, uh I don't know which comes first. Is the communal singing abandoned and then the record companies and the and iTunes kind of fills the gap, uh, f- fills the vacuum. But I think that's 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 a huge problem. And then uh, related to that, and I'll, I'll just mention quickly, um, the loss of uh, the loss of an idea, any idea of cultural authority linked to music. So music was always received as part of being part of a culture, part of a folk. Uh, and um, the difference between popular music and folk music isn't just musical style. The difference between popular music and folk music is that folk music was received from an intergenerational continuity that was part of a community that was also concerned with moral matters. So, um, you know, you didn't re- you didn't learn a song from your uncle that encouraged licentiousness because <laughs> people knew that wasn't a good thing to tell young Johnny that he ought to do. But marketers have no problems uh, promoting songs that promote licentiousness because they're not accountable to any kind of cultural authority or communal continuity. They're not worried about the next generation. Uh, so that's a, that's a huge... So the, the configuration of music outside of communities, outside of communities with a kind of trajectory. Again, I don't think it's impossible to recover that. Uh, And I think the church may be the only community that that can recover that. You know, I often tell, I'm music director at my church, and we sing music from, you know, 800 years of musical experience uh, regularly. And I always tell my congregation that, you know, this is our folk music. This is our folk tradition. It starts with Gregorian chant, and we have Maurice Duraflay and James McMillan, who's writing the next chapter of our folk music. Um, but that that mentality is, again, it's not impossible to recover. I, if I can say one more thing about families, I think one of the... <clears throat> One of the biggest challenges of raising kids is to get them, for, for Christian parents, is to get them to have the church as their primary community of identity rather than uh, their age group as their primary community of identity. Uh, and I think that moral formation 
happens within the context of a community that exerts a kind of binding address of moral authority. And if you have a sense that your principal sense of moral membership is in the group that wears a certain kind of clothes or listens to certain music or uh, rather than in, in, a, in a community that does have moral authority, it, it, it's really hard to, to build anything like character or conscience. I'd recommend James Hunter's book, The Death of Character, which really deals with that really well. Character as a sociological phenomenon. And I think shared musical traditions, shared musical repertoire, is a way of binding people into a, a sense of membership in a community that's really unique. But when the, when the technology enables people to be what I call autoculturalist, that is a culture of one, the, uh, not multicultural, but uh, you know, I'm my own culture and I choose my own repertoire, my, I make my own playlist. That, that, that eliminates that sense of moral accountability in a significant way.